0: Party Parts are a regular
1: podcast, semi-regular, some might say. So, Would they say that? <laughs> <laughs> exploring, I think they would say a podcast potentially. <laughs> 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 a podcast
0: <laughs> exploring women's roles in genre cinema. At uh, where your hosts, my name is Sophie, and I'm Amy, and today we're going to be talking about it's kind of a Christmas special. Uh, we're going to be looking at Happiest Season, and we're going to be talking about Christmas movies. So look, let's to kick us off. Tis the season. Amy, what's a Christmas movie you love?
1: Oh, that's so tricky. Um, I Because for so many reasons, which we won't talk about in this podcast, because that's what I pay my therapist for. Uh, Christmas <laughs> is not my favorite time of year. <laughs> so Christmas movies are not my favorite genre. Um, in saying that I do have some favorite Christmas movies. So I think my favoritest Christmas movie, or at least the one that I consistently watch every Christmas is Home Alone. For the most obvious reason is that it is a big warm cookie <laughs> and it is a familiar film from my childhood, right? But yes. I'm going to posit my favoriteist favouritest Christmas movie is in fact The Mighty Ducks.
0: Really? I mean, A, that doesn't entirely surprise me, knowing your deep, deep love of the Mighty Ducks. Because? However, honestly, it's actually been a long time since I've seen it. So is is there any Christmas scene in it?
1: Yes. How very dare you? Yes, there is. It is obviously (laughs) set (laughs) at winter because that's when snow happens in the Northern Hemisphere. And so it they go to like a, a snow festival which is all lit up with christmas lights and all that kind of stuff and but it doesn't actually occur on christmas so it's occurring around christmas
0: um, so it's kind of a Christmas adjacent film. Correct. Yes, they might.
1: They would, <laughs> but there's Tinsel and there's, there's no snowman. to be fair. There's no snowman. but it is definitely my favorite Christmas movie because it is also one of my favorite movies. Um, but if we're going for the hardcore Christmas movie, I think it has to be home alone. I don't think I can go past that. It's definitely, like I said, big, warm cookie hug that takes me back to my childhood. I can remember watching that in the cinema with my family um and (laughs) my favorite the reason i reason i love it so much my brother was probably about the same age that kevin McAllister is at the time that this movie came out and he loved this movie perhaps a little bit too much because he was standing (laughs) on his seat cheering jumping around going frickin' ballistic the whole way through (laughs) the final (laughs) confrontation. He loved it so much. (laughs) There's a bit, uh, you may all recall that um, Kevin McAllister is accidentally left at home by himself over Christmas. He has a big fight with his family and he wishes that his family would disappear for Christmas. And shockingly, they do. Not by magic, but by pure disorganization. <laughs> and <laughs> Kevin's left alone in this ginormous house um, during a crime spree in his neighborhood, and these two band burglars. Um, decide to rob the McAllister home, and Kevin takes it upon himself to defend it. And once the burglars realize that Kevin's home alone, redundant. they make it a personal—they right? <laughs> make it a personal mission to kind of get the kid, but also to target this house really hard. And Kevin sets up all these elaborate traps to defend the house. Um, there is one shot which you may or may not recall where <laughs> Kevin sticks <laughs> a shotgun full with rock salt shotgun filled with rock salt outside the doggy door and shoots one of the burglars between the legs with rock salt and my brother who is at this point standing on his chair in the cinema shouts at the top of his lungs oh right in the nuts oh my god and for that reason, I love Home Alone the most.
0: <laughs> that is incredible. And it's so you. funny but also, it, I can see your brother doing that today.
1: So. <laughs> he would do that today. So he <laughs> would. But beyond that, beyond that, I think it also has one of the greatest film scores and soundtracks. Um mm. Of of any of any movie that I've seen in my childhood, and I, it still makes me cry, uh, <laughs> or quietly well up. Um, the church sequence when um, Kevin's reflecting on his his family just before the big climax, and it still makes me immensely emotional during that. And it's and it's all because of the the hymn choice. And uh, to that, I have to say, it, it really is a credit to the film that it it still serves. Uh, as well as it does and it still holds up to this day although the stuff that kevin does to the burglars may or may not land him in jail at this <laughs> point in time <laughs> yeah that's yeah. incredible i do love it anyway yeah. i mean there is uh, such so a reason my christmas has,
0: there is a reason you yeah, know that it stood the test of time so to speak that's a pretty old film these days
1: mm. like it's late 80s and it And I think it's also one of those, not only does it hit the nostalgia button really hard, but it's one of the big films that actually gave kids a a real huge sense of agency. Mm. Like you contribute to your house and and you are are a protector of your family. Even if you feel like the littlest person in the room, you still have something to contribute that's meaningful. And that's something that you don't often see in movies generally that Mm. aren't specifically targeted at kids and I don't think this was specifically targeted at kids. This was a um this was a, a, a family yes, it was a family movie, but it wasn't um a kids movie. It wasn't mm-hmm. um it wasn't talking down to kids. It was actually quite adult and addressing some really adult themes.
0: Yeah. That's cool. It's actually what I haven't seen in quite a while, so I feel like I need to revisit it. Um but it is yeah, I've got very fond memories of having watched it. Um Yeah.
1: That's it's cool. also, you know, right in the nuts. Like, it's yeah. very entertaining. <laughs> and also really, infinitely really quotable. Like, yeah. Right, I know, right? My brother, he doesn't pull any punches. He, he calls it as he sees it. <laughs> <laughs> so what about you, Soph? What's your favourite Christmas film?
0: I, I like a lot of Christmas films. Um, I, I'm a bit partial. It's hilarious because I'm a bit the same as you, where it's like Christmas is not a season that I have any particularly um, – like you know, there there are people out there who really really love Christmas. Um, and I am not one of them. Um, <laughs> as I've said to many people, you know, it is expensive. It is needlessly stressful, and it just becomes. Like, there's a lot of pressure gets put on Christmas. I think. Um, but one of the few things that I really really do like about Christmas is a Christmas movie. Um, for reasons that I think we're going to talk about later on in this podcast when we talk about Christmas as a as a genre overall. Um. But also I think that, you know, Christmas movies, like some of it, some of the historic Christmas movies, like It's a Wonderful Life, you know, um, Miracle on 34th Street, White Christmas, all of these sorts of films that really formed the backbone of the Christmas film genre are actually just excellent films in their own right. Like they're just really, really well-made, mm. good films that really wanted to tell – Um, tell a story you know about the season um, and about family because you know it's family films and I guess that's kind of what you're saying with Home Alone too is it's about kind of really rethinking the family unit which is again so much of what um, I think is fundamental to the genre like you know with It's, It's a Wonderful Life about a man who's been providing for his family who finds out that you know he's lost all his money so he almost commits suicide you know that's the and, and renegotiating what it means to be a provider is what It's a Wonderful Life is about. Um, and it's just dressed up in a fancy hat for Christmas. Um, but yeah, but so, so it's a funny thing to kind of look at. But no, my favorite Christmas movie is Christmas Holiday, which is a 1944 film noir uh, with Dina Durbin, who I have a huge soft spot for. So Dina Durbin was kind of like the poor man's Shirley Temple. Um, She was not as famous. She was quite famous in her own right, but she was never like Shirley Temple level of famous. Um, But she had more of an adult career, I think, than Shirley Temple did. And A Christmas Holiday was kind of one of her adult, one of her early adult films. And it was made during World War II. Transition films, yeah? Yeah, one of her transition films, yeah. Um, And it was one of the ones where she kind of played a very. She was a lounge singer who'd married um, a southern aristocrat who'd gone off to war. And then there is basically a huge crime plot that sweeps the airport because she's, been, she's a lounge singer at an airport bar and the airport bar gets snowed in for Christmas, but all the soldiers are, are coming home from the war. And then it becomes basically a classic film noir. So it's extremely dramatic with beautiful lighting and cinematography. <laughs> <laughs> um lots of sultry lounge singing songs um femme fatales galore and murder uh, and what more could you want of from course a Christmas film really
1: most definitely <laughs> i love but, it already
0: yeah. it's like one of the ones i think that's really been forgotten by time some would probably say that's a good thing but i personally would not because i love it um it's just it's one that i've got a huge soft spot for and it's um It's not a good movie. I wouldn't describe it as a good movie. But, like, I'm very, very partial to a film noir generally. And I think it plays with the trope and with the season and with the constructs of what a Christmas movie was back when there wasn't really a proper construct around it, you know? Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because it was pretty early in terms of Christmas movie canon. Um, Yep. Yeah, but it's a a lot of fun. And also kind of, I think, really is one of the movies that formed the crime and Christmas subgenre.
1: And the Christmas subgenres
0: is one of the things that I think we want to talk about.
1: We definitely do. We definitely do. I'm interested, though, in this film and this idea of particularly um, being snowed in at Christmas. I feel like that's a Mm. really interesting trope. But then to add that Extra layer of intrigue with a serial killer is just like chef kiss. I love that concept so <laughs> yeah. much, and I think I'm gonna have to add it to my list. I actually think he'd love it, I really think he'd yeah. be into it. Okay, all right, back to what we were talking about Home Alone. Mm-hmm. Because, so incidentally, coincidentally, it is the 30th anniversary of Home Alone, uh the day that we are actually recording this. Oh my episode. god. So, yes, I had, the reminders just popped up on my phone to watch Home Alone because it was released in Australia on the 13th of December, 1990. Um, so guess what I'll be doing tonight, <laughs> just FYI.
0: <laughs> that is amazing. Holy shit, what timing. Yeah. Just a fate.
1: I know, I know. Lies. And it's, it's, it's remarkable that it's 30 years old and it still manages to hit those emotional points as mm. strong as it does even if all the action is now at the point where it's a bit ludicrous. Like, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's held up really well. Yeah, no, it is. It's such a, it's yeah. such
0: a good film. And it's so interesting to see those movies that have stood the test of time within the genre. Cause I mean, like, Like we were just kind of saying, you know, you've got movies like It's a Wonderful Life, which have been around forever and are still, you know, it's played, I know, here in Melbourne every year in Federation Square on, on, like, three days before Christmas. Like, these are movies that have now, are almost 100 years old in that case. Um, But even Mm. being 30 years old for Home Alone, you know, Die Hard and, and movies like this that feel like there's so much this intrinsic part of our holiday experience. And I, I do want to say that it's really interesting to me, the fact that the kind of old Christmas variety shows seem to be making a comeback. Like the yes. Mariah Carey's got yes, one. Casey Musgrave. Yeah. Mariah Carey's yes. got one. Yeah. Um, um, and even a couple of years ago, the Bill Murray special, which was pretty great that Sofia Coppola yep. did. And it's like, I'm, I'm actually kind of loving that to be honest. I think there's so much
1: fun. Um, and they're a real callback. I mean, Casey Musgraves was amazing, I have yeah, to say. Yeah, I haven't I seen it. I've been wanting just, to. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. It was so nice. It's, anyway, so, but it's so
0: good. Like, it's. I just think there's so much. There's yes. something really fun about that kind of premise. There's a really great clip of Fred Astaire and Dean Martin from a variety show back in the, I think it's in the 50s on TV, where they are both completely smashed. And just singing Christmas carols. And it is so delightful. And they're just obviously having a ball. They're riffing with the audience. They're riffing with each other. Clearly off their faces. (laughs) But it's just like, it's... As you should be at Christmas time. It's Christmas time. And that sort of energy, I think, is kind of starting to come back for the whole... Like, for these sorts of variety specials. Like, not smashed. Most modern stars are not smashed. But um, just that kind of inviting format I think is really interesting and I'm really I'm Mm. very fascinated because I mean I mean I think I've said this in this podcast before but I've always been fascinated with the way podcasts have come back because in a lot of ways they're like the old radio shows particularly uh, Mm -hmm. fiction podcasts are really a hark back to a bygone a medium and a genre that was supposed dead you know yeah, and I think yep. we're seeing that now with these Christmas variety shows as well. Like those haven't been around for years, um, and then all of a sudden we've had this new swell of them again. It's 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 fascinating.
1: It's, I think it's it's interesting that you bring that up because I think one of the things that I struggle with with Christmas uh, films particularly is the idea that somehow christmas is a different time of year and -hmm. that people are somehow better and these variety (laughs) shows i think (laughs) do that in uh they kind of stylize um entertainment in such a way that it positions itself as this is that it's that hark back to a better time it Mm. speaks to this idea that somehow before was better you know before now was better and i that that to me it. I don't know what I'm saying here, but it always feels a little bit disingenuous, and I think that's why Christmas movies and Christmas specials frustrate me so much (laughs) because even when Christmas is over, in fact, I think Christmas is really hard for everyone, for for so many people, but Mm. Christmas doesn't change people. It, it truly doesn't. In no. fact, I think often Christmas lays bare people's worst habits uh, and worst behaviours because there is so much expectation that it's going to be better. It's like New Year's Eve, man. Like, nobody has fun. Yeah. No. <laughs> uh, it is. Man, I'm too cynical for this.
0: <laughs> it is, I think. But I think you're kind of right in the sense of there's this element of nostalgia, but it's also rose-colored glasses where –
1: Oh, definitely.
0: What you're kind of – Looking at, and again, I mean, this kind of comes back to what I was saying before, too, but just there being so much pressure on the holidays overall. And that comes back to that, um, what you're saying about thinking that it's a special, it's not like the rest of the year, things are different at Christmas. when it's like, um, not really. It's still, it's really just another day. Um, and for many cultures yep. all over the world and many other religions, it is just another day. You know,
1: it really um, is.
0: Yeah. So it's It's pretty fascinating in that kind of conceit, which again brings us to this point about genre generally, because Christmas in a lot of ways feels like its own genre, but I don't think it is. I think it's more a vehicle um, or a narrative trope uh, that's used, interestingly,
1: in a lot of genre films. I completely and utterly agree. I think uh, it's... It feels like its own genre, but when you kind of start looking at the variety of Christmas films and the way that they tap into a whole bunch of other different genres like crime, fantasy, um, horror even, um, rom-com, action, you know, they're not – they actually abide more by those genre tropes than Mm. any set kind of, and I'm using air quotes here, Christmas tropes. Although, and you made an excellent point off it, that there is one solid Christmas trope, which is Sophie over it. The happily ever after. It is. And it doesn't necessarily mean the kissy-kissy under the mistletoe. It just means things end on an up and not a down.
0: Yeah, totally. And there often is, I think, it's not always, but I'd say 98% of the time, there is the family happy ending. Mm,
1: interesting. Or the, the constructed family, whether it's
0: yeah. blood Yeah, either found or, family yeah. or, or blood family. Um, like, even thinking about horror movies where maybe you've got a couple of deaths in there, usually the core of the family or the friend group makes it survives and has a thing of eggnog and a bourbon. You know, like, it's, there is <laughs> definitely um, the uptick at the end. Unlike other films where it might not necessarily feel so beholden to the happy ending. I think Christmas movies, no matter their genre, no matter their format, feel beholden to the happy ending. I completely agree. Um, Yes. Because even if you're thinking about kind of crime movies, because, I mean, just coming off what I was saying about Christmas Holiday, that's a film that's got a relatively happy ending. But you're also looking at movies, you know, like Die Hard, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, In Bruges. Like all of these crime movies, regardless of whether or not they're like action thrillers, like Die Hard or indie um,
1: crime offbeat like, films like In Bruges, yep. uh, or even have have Bad, the bad Santa, where it's like mm. that kind of dark comedy crime, yeah. where it's not really crime; it's kind of more in the the black comedy end. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I can. I completely agree, but it still ends on that up note and it still has that element, not of the fantastic, but of almost whimsy to it Yes, where it's not, it's almost fantastical, but it's not quite like even Mm. die hard, like (laughs) the scale of die hard, like, you know, my thing is scale, but the scale of die hard is that this one man can save everybody, you know? Mm. Um, And that's, that's a fantastic concept, you know? Yeah. That lends into the miracle of Christmas kind of mythology around that um, Christmas films tend to have. uh, Mm. Also, whether or not it's a spiritual miracle or it's a wishful thinking miracle.
0: Yeah. And that's a really good point, actually, about how intrinsically tied to um, fantasy christmas is even if it's not a fantasy film on paper like or even if it prioritizes a different genre there's always an element of fantasy with christmas like with christmas films Mm. um and like even i mean you can look at right at the current sweep of netflix romances and how frequently there's a degree of fantasy in all of them. I mean, like sometimes literally like the time traveling night in that Vanessa Hudgens one, which I can't remember the name <laughs> of right now.
1: Or um, well, the ghost in the, is it the Christmas inn where, he, yeah. where she falls in love with a ghost?
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, th- these are like literal fantasy movies. So it's, it's really fascinating seeing how much that trope takes prevalence. I mean, even going back to Miracle on 34th street, which is technically mm. a dramatic Christmas.
1: Legal drama, kind of.
0: Yeah, I'd say it's a, a mother daughter story, at the, at a, I would put it as its predominant focus. Uh, then a romance, um, and mm. then a Christmas film, but it's a fantasy. Um, Santa still rides away yeah. on a sleigh at the end of it, and Santa is still the one <laughs> who's like, you know, the whole premise of it is the fact that they act—they're looking for a mall Santa and accidentally end up with a real Sa- with the real Santa. Like it's so, and and the real Santa yeah. is who I love that we're saying the real Santa.
1: Like there is a real Santa. Yeah, I know. Well, it is. It's this is a G-rated yeah. family yeah. podcast, it- Amy. We've got.
0: <laughs> it's not at all.
1: Sorry. Yes, Yes. there is Santa. Santa as well. No, I think 110%. 100%, 10%. And even like Christmas episodes Mm. in TV series. And I always come back to the Christmas episode of Scrubs where – like, Turk is like hella invested in Christmas because he comes from quite a religious family. Although his mother is a Jehovah's Witness, so, and they don't believe in Christmas, so I'm not entirely <laughs> sure how that works out. But that's neither here nor there. We're not here to discuss that. <laughs> but, um,. Elliot, though, is a cynic, you know, um, because she's very, you know, she comes from a very waspy family and it's very clinical and very cut and dried and there are certain performative elements to Christmas, but it's not a spiritual thing for her. And even something like Scrubs, which is a fantasy comedy series, uh, really – they still tap into this idea of a divine power kind of overlooking everything um, and it still has the magic mm. aspect to it that you're talking about with like Miracle on 34th mm. Street. So, yes, it's still – it's the medical comedy first, but it taps into this fantastical element really strongly throughout the series generally. But at, in the Christmas episode, particularly hard. It leans into it really yeah. hard.
0: Yeah. It's it's interesting yep. too to kind of think about it – I mean, I mean, there are, I think, exceptions to this rule. I think you can look at a movie like Love Actually, which I do not think is particularly fantasy-focused, but that's heavy romance. Mm-hmm. And romance is fantasy. Yeah, and I think there are certain parts of it that are – I guess it's coming back to what you were saying before about that thing of whimsy um, and about how, I think, how often we associate that whimsy with fantasy. Yeah. Um, as yeah. a genre overall, but there—I mean—there are other things too. I mean, we should. It's probably worth mentioning Last Christmas, which we reviewed earlier on this podcast. Which is again coming back to the Netflix movie you were just talking about before. Is a woman falling in love with a ghost, or is he a ghost? Spoiler alert! I feel like everyone knows at this point. Surely, <laughs> is he a ghost? Is he a ghost, or is he a figment of her or... imagination?
1: Yes to both those questions. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, I can c- continue your thought process there, please. Um, well just just thinking about kind of cuz
0: I mean a lot of the movies that we've talked about now already which are kind of staples of the genre like like um Home Alone or like Die Hard or like um It's a Wonderful Life. I feel like there hasn't been I guess a genre defying Iconic new iconic Christmas movie, probably, probably since Love. Actually, actually, um,
1: actually, yeah, uh, <laughs> I think there have been
0: attempts at it, and I do think Last Christmas was an attempt
1: at it. I completely. I I think Last Christmas was angling for it. I I think what it was really pushing for was to capitalize on the Christmas Prince. So I would, I would posit that Christmas Prince, while it has not entered the general public in terms of uh, the classic Christmas movie, it's definitely made an impact in the way that we think about Christmas movies because the volume of Christmas rom-coms that have come out of yeah. Uh, following The Christmas Prince is redonkulous. It is horrifying, like the the volume of films that have come out and let me just double check when that came out. Do you
0: think, on that note,
1: 2017 it came out and now there are hundreds, hundreds of them
0: how much do you think, so for this, because this is a very interesting question to me and an interesting point to me. Um, so the Hallmark Lifetime slash Lifetime Christmas movie mm-hmm. has obviously been around for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is such an American thing and is often so, like, we don't get Hallmark or Lifetime in Australia. Or we get Hallmark, no. but it's not the same. Um, and it's not we get the, m- the same
1: <laughs> We get scale. The, the incest mo- movies and the murder movies. <laughs> we don't get yeah, that Christmas. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: very specific uh,
1: genre <laughs>
0: <laughs> distinction <laughs> um but how much do you think a part of a christmas prince's huge success because it is essentially of that caliber mm. um how much do you think that has to do with the international same day release from netflix oh everything in terms of its Cultural
1: legacy, yeah, everything, a hundred percent. I think if Netflix, if streaming, I think it hit. It hit. It was just a culmination of perfect timing. It hit right yeah. as streaming um, kind of exploded in Australia, particularly, and I think Australia actually drove a lot of the social media commentary about a Christmas Prince somehow. Um, <laughs> well, Rose McIver is New Zealand, a Kiwi. Yeah, exactly.
0: So, said yeah. So NZ, it's,
1: yeah. Makes sense, makes sense. But I think, you know, <laughs> 2017 was kind of really when Netflix started to, to amp up in, and become a much more uh, considered player in uh, content making. So let me back that up because so this, was, this is when, you know, Orange is the New Black was winning all the awards and it was Netflix original and it was, you know, making – making strides in becoming, I think, you know, a, a contender, for want of a better word, within um, content. Um, and the fact that it had a simultaneous international release, and I'm referring to A Christmas Prince again here, certainly helped things. Because it meant that everybody was talking about it at the same time, which doesn't often yeah. happen internationally because there's staggered theatre releases, there's staggered releases on streaming. Not every region has access to content because it's being sold to the, the local television network or whatever. But A Christmas Prince was on Netflix everywhere. At the same time so it just seemed to hit at that right time um, and had the right circumstances to become the thing that was talked about and now you're seeing everybody making Christmas movies not just Hallmark everybody's dipping the toe in and starting to play with the Christmas rom-com model yeah which is
0: fascinating too because I mean we've definitely seen I mean there's always been a Christmas movie that's come out around the around the season but it definitely feels like an uptick and i mean i know we talked about this a lot in our last christmas review about expectations around theater releases versus streaming releases and in particular if i think we talked a bit about how if we'd like last christmas more if we'd seen it on streaming versus seeing it on the big screen because expectations are different Yes. Of the theatre experience versus the streaming experience. And I think that certainly worked in um, A Christmas Prince's favour, because nobody's expecting
1: It's a Wonderful Life.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Out of a Netflix original on, which is pegged, you know, which is sort of, it's such a, it's simultaneously both niche and universal, you know, like it's this kind of, um, such a specific exploration of, that qual well, that caliber i guess of film yes 100%. Um, and about how that kind of feels um, and i think we'll probably end up talking about that a bit now happiest season review tonight which was a theater release here but has gone straight to streaming in america um well i think that's because of covid Is
1: yes this? i think it's more because of covid than anything yeah yeah,
0: yeah. um Yes. Yeah, it's interesting to kind of look at it in terms of the, in some ways, in that sense, I think that the Christmas trope is one of the few tropes that really scales, not just genre, but quality in the way that we're kind of talking about. Like, I mean, you make kind of trashy romance versus legit romance, but I wonder if... It would have the same crossover without a trope as substantial
1: as the Christmas trope. Interesting, interesting, because uh, yeah, I wonder. Because,
0: like, would a Christmas Prince be as successful as it was if it wasn't a Christmas movie? If it was just a romance? No, not at all. Yeah, so that's my thought too. So, about because... what what power does the trope have overall? And simul- simultaneously, with Die Hard, do you think Die Hard would be as successful as it was as it is? without it being a christmas movie as well.
1: And this is where I think the christmas trope or the christmas genre is actually a subgenre and not the prime genre because Die Hard could exist without Christmas. It yeah. could it, and it would function well. I mean Bad Boys is kind of in the same vein. It's not the same themes, but obviously it's that kind of, you know, macho action less every man than Die Hard, but please don't Yell at me on social media, um, <laughs> but there are there are a lot of action films that are um, about the everyman overcoming um, to save his family. You know, overcoming his own ego and insecurities to save his family. There are there are a lot of those. Would Die Hard have yeah. been as successful? I don't know. I th- and this is where I think you know the Christmas subgenre is more than just set dressing. Um, I yeah. think that can sometimes people just assume that that's. There, and there is a point of difference, and I think that's the difference between, say, Mighty Ducks and Home Alone, is Mighty Ducks, it is just mm-hmm. set dressing because it's, yeah. it just has to, happens to be set at that time of year because that's when it snows. But for Home Alone – Kind of like with
0: Carol as well, as, a, as Christmas happens in Carol. Yes. But I wouldn't call it a Christmas movie
1: necessarily. No, no. It's a, it's a, it's a tool it as for the mechanics of the film, but it's not central yeah. to the story. Whereas yeah. Home Alone and even Happiest Season, Christmas mm. is central to the story, which yes. we will debate. It's it's <laughs> the scaffolding, yes, exactly. Which means you know you can have you can have a movie set at Christmas and you can have a Christmas movie and they are not the same things. Which no is Mighty Ducks versus Home Alone, they are not the same things. Yeah, yeah, no.
0: Um, which is a really interesting kind of thing to explore in terms of what what it means to be a Christmas movie yep. and what the trappings of it looks like.
1: Which brings me to films like, say, Gremlins, mm. right, which is set at Christmas. Yeah. Would mm. – and I and this is where – is Gremlins a Christmas movie? I'd say yes. I'd say yes for Gremlins. Okay. Is it enough of a Christmas influence to be a Christmas movie?
0: I'd still say yes. I think there is enough in Gremlins – Look, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I think, of, I think in hindsight of Gremlins as a Christmas movie. Okay. All right. I think there's enough in terms of the parameters around the trope versus something like, for instance, like Rise of the Guardians,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, which is one that looks at lots of different fantasy characters, including Santa, and is set around Christmas. I don't think of that as a Christmas movie. Really? I think of that as, I think of that as a children's fantasy movie. Interesting.
1: Okay. Okay. What's the distinction then between, say, that and literally Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, which is about a mythical Christmas creature as well? Spoiler alert, Santa.
0: I think think probably because Rise of the Guardians has the Easter Bunny in it as well and the Tooth Fairy in it as well. Like, it feels more... Like, it is about more than just Christmas. It feels like it's about the idea of... And I guess kind of because I tend to think of Rise of the Guardians like American Gods for kids. American (laughs) Gods for
1: (laughs) kids. Okay, continue.
0: Well, look, it it is, right? It's the same premise. It is, it is. You are... You are what you are because of the way people believe in you, and like as a (laughs) mythical creature, like that's significant, and as like kind of a cultural identity. Look, I think it makes sense, Amy. I think that's what it should have been called. In fact, is American Gods Junior. I'm sorry, I'm losing my freaking mind over that analogy. (laughs) Well, I mean, am I wrong? And you're not, and that's the horrifying (laughs) part about it.
1: (laughs) <laughs> Ooh, okay. Yes. So that's the- what I mean. Like I
0: think <laughs> that's why I'd place it more as a fantasy film, is because it's not necessarily it's not restricted to Christmas. It is very much a
1: broader Christmas is the film setting. about belief and yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. It was so then- just about Santa for sure. Okay. Christmas because it's actually not about it's not about Santa at all. It's about Jack Frost. No, so it's that it's that exactly. It's something, yeah. So it, Christmas is the set decoration in that regard. But then you've got something mm. like the Santa Claus or Elf, yes, which is about Christmas. So there is even within is. that distinctions, I guess, in terms of uh, how much po- Christmas potion we put into the mix. You know, as to mm. and how much that genre. And this is where you know Christmas as a genre and then comedy as the subgenre versus comedy as the genre with Christmas as the subgenre. I think there is a clear distinction there but it's almost it like is, a Kinsey yeah. scale a Kinsey scale where you know. It <laughs> is. Zero means Christmas is a setting and six is it's a Christmas movie, you know, <laughs> it's yeah. about Christmas. No, it
0: totally is. It's it's completely a scale, right? <laughs> and it's like I'm actually even partially just imagining like um, – the professor from Professor X from Powerpuff Girls you know during the opening sequence where he's like <laughs> a bit of sugar a bit of spice and then whoa chemical X and that's just Christmas is, is <laughs> chemical X just getting explode glass shattering everywhere
1: <laughs> pouring in. I just see it that's the... I love it. <laughs> All right yeah, so what it's... we've established is Christmas movies can mean a lot of things <laughs> yeah.
0: There are HEA, there are as much a HEA as romance films, but that HEA can look different. It can be family or found family bound. Yep. Um, I think Christmas has got to be more than just a setting, it's got to be the scaffolding of the narrative. Okay. I think. And because if you look at Die Hard, that's the scaffolding of the. Like, he's got to get home for Christmas.
1: Yep. No, I completely that is, agree. That is what props it up. Um but whether it's the scaffold or whether it's the whole house in Christmas colours, it yes. varies along that scale. So either end of that yes. spectrum and is. And so okay. that's the
0: that's the yeah, that's the genre versus subgenre discussion, like what you're what you're saying. So if it's the whole house, it is the it's a Christmas movie with fantasy, with romance, with something else. If it's just the scaffolding of the house. It is the subgenre, which means that it is a romance movie, a so romance Christmas. Christmas movie, as opposed to Christmas romance. Okay, yeah. you know. yep. I think yep. that makes sense. Yep. um, I think a dash a dash of whimsy has always got to be in a Christmas movie, regardless of what it is. Yeah. And that includes, again, Gremlins is actually a really good example of that. That is a horror family Christmas movie. It's pretty heavy on the whimsy. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at them. look at the Gremlins. They are whimsy. <laughs> Until Inboarded. they are not.
1: <laughs> until you feel
0: <laughs> Yeah, that's true.
1: Um, do you think there's another trope to it? Uh, I think snow is a big trope. Um, yeah, snowing is a big trope. Um, but this the level of that depends on the genre or the subgenre that it, it's participating in. So, for example, rom coms, mm. there is inevitably caught in the snow kissing moment always yes um but as for the other genres i think the 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 value of that or the the um priority of that varies um yes. but i think that about covers carolers it. as well i think there's got to be carols and everything or some perverted remixed version of a christmas carol somewhere <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah with djs correct mm-hmm. 100%. So then I ask, I want to flip that on its head a little bit, Australian Christmas movies.
0: Oh, this is the bone, bone, <laughs> bane of my existence. It's Amy. the bone of your existence. As you know, it's what the bone of my existence um, is the Australian Christmas thing. I even went to, so I went Christmas shopping the other day at Chadston, which is a big shopping center near here. Um, and they had the Sanders Village set up. Mm-hmm. And, like, all the fucking fake snow, the reindeers, everyone in, like, all of the elf stuff in scarves and, like, hats. And, like, it's laughable to me, the fact that Australia clings to this so hard. Mm-hmm. Like, we know that it's going to be minimum 30 degrees on Christmas Day. It is early summer. It is not going to be pleasant weather. And the idea of it being snowing or needing scarves is immensely frustrating to me. Um,
1: 120 million percent agree with you.
0: And the sad thing is that our one Christmas carol, the one... Australian Christmas Carol is now ruined because Rolf Harris is a pedophile.
1: I know, it's horrifying. And I actually really like Six White Boomers. I think it's a great Me too. And Rolf Harris is a dickhead, and I'm really upset that I can no longer participate in Six White Boomers.
0: I know, me too. Can't play it anymore. It's dead to me.
1: I know. Because he is a horrible Um, Yeah, That's quite interesting, because I think there's two – like, because – when you ask someone what is an Australian Christmas movie, I don't think anything immediately comes to mind. And no, you've really got to kind of sit on it. And I did. The only ones I could think of offhand was Bush Christmas, starring Nicole Kidman, <laughs> which is a 1983 three uh, remake of I think 1940s ish. Uh, Australian Chips Rafferty film. So, and it's like Nicole Kidman peak perm, like it's beautiful. Um, (laughs) And then there's um, Around the World with Dot, which was um, I think early 80s, like super early 80s Um, and animated, which would appear on television. Mm. Was it animated? No, it had animation in it. I can't quite remember. Anyway, it appears on television occasionally. Um, but this is the thing. Not everybody knows about it. Like, you're literally going, Ugh.
0: No, I don't know. I, I know about Bush Christmas, but I don't know about Around the World with Dot.
1: Yeah, it's 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 kind of like Bedknobs and Broomsticks where it's part live action, part animation. Okay. So very, very vogue for the time. Um, and it occasionally appears at, you know, 9 a.m. on Christmas Day or whatever. Um but beyond that, like there was one from the 90s, maybe one from the 80s. I There's not a lot of films that focus on Christmas. And I think it's because this idea of Christmas tropes and Christmas mythology is so bound to the British and U.K. model, uh, British and U.S. model, yeah. sorry, that to do anything that's different is not seen as a Christmas movie. And I come back to, like, all the promos that appear on television for, like, you know – today show and the morning show and all that they always do like let it snow or yeah something that's as you said you know you know northern hemisphere themed we're so bound by that tradition that the australian traditions of christmas um we don't have films that show that because it's not then seen as a christmas movie
0: no exactly and it's it's i think it's such a catch-22 you know it's like they're not made because they're they haven't been made really and we do feel so beholden to the Northern Hemisphere, like like you've said, um, and to these films that have been around for a really, really long time, you know, like it's to bring it back to It's a Wonderful Life, you know, which is probably one of the, it's probably the quintessential Christmas film, I think. You know, the scene where he runs through the snow to get home to his family is iconic. Yeah, And that is so frequently tied, I think, to the broader cultural consciousness of christmas that having someone on a beach somewhere doesn't really eating prawns you know like it's not <laughs> yeah. it's uh, even though it's very very ingrained in our cultural experience it's not one that's in, it's not one that's a part of the cinematic cultural experience yeah. um and i think that i mean it does really reestablish this idea of the fact that there are There is a cinematic culture, you know, that feels universal, but actually isn't, but we all subscribe to it because it's what's fed on such a broad, it's what's served at the table, you know, Mm, like mm. it's, you're showing up, but this is what you, this is what you're given to eat. And it's what, because it's what most people are willing to, it it, it is attuned to most people's taste, I guess. Yeah. It ends up very much limiting things. I mean, all this said, Stan is coming out with its own Australian Christmas movie this year, which is A Sunburnt Christmas. Which I'm so glad you mentioned, Um, because I was going to talk about because it looks amazing. (laughs) But again, that's crime. Yeah. So it's like, it's a crime Christmas film. So it's interesting in the context of seeing that sort of thing in terms of the constraints of genre, again, just to kind of bring it full circle back to what we were talking about at the start of this discussion about how intrinsically tied Christmas and genre is.
1: Mm. I'm so excited. I can't believe I'm finally gonna meet everyone. There's something that we should talk about. Hi. Hi! I didn't tell my parents I'm gay. So who do they think I am?
0: This is Harper's orphan friend, Abby. Yes, of course, they're there.
1: You're so brave. You don't need to be. So happiest season. A young woman with a plan to propose to her girlfriend while at her family's annual holiday party discovers that her partner hasn't yet come out to her conservative parents. Happiest Season was written and directed by Clea Duvall and stars Kristen Stewart, Mackenzie Davis, Mary Steenbergen, Victor Garber, Alison Brie, Mary Holland, Dan Levy, Burl Mossely and Aubrey Plaza. Sophie! What did you think of Happiest Season?
0: It was certainly a movie that I saw. <laughs> no, that's not fair. Uh, look, I had a lot of problems with this movie Um, overall, but my my number one problem with it, it was that, to me, the script was undercooked. Um, I actually loved the premise. Mm-hmm. I thought the premise was so much fun. I loved that it kind of was exploring what... Meet the Parents looks like in 2020, potentially to different types of people. Mm -hmm. Um, I love that it in the process of that, that it really embraced the kind of um, odd couple tropes, just one that I'm very endeared to. I think odd couple tropes are a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Um, I liked the way that it's... I liked the promise and the... The cliff notes, I think, of the family at home. Yes. Um and the character notes. And I liked the I liked the concept overall. Um and I loved um I loved oh my god, I'm having a complete mental blank on the character's name. Give me two
1: seconds. Jane.
0: To Eris read... Jane, yes. <laughs> How did I know? I loved Jane. How did she know that I loved Jane? I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know. Um, I loved Jane. I thought she was the richest character of the group. What I struggled with was the fact that I don't think we got to know Harper and Abby as a couple enough before we got thrust into the family.
1: Into the conflict. And then I don't think
0: we got to know any of the family dynamics well enough to justify the ending. And that was something that I found very... Yeah, it was something that I found really frustrating because I thought it's it's a movie that I thought would have benefited from being a proper um, dual point of view film. Mm-hmm. I think it would have benefited from Abby and Harper both being point of view characters, as opposed to the last couple of scenes where we got a couple of Harper point of view scenes right at the end. Um, because I think there was a... I, I wish that Harper's secret of not being out to her family which was so pivotal to the plot had been treated more as a personal conflict for her than it was yes narratively because i actually don't
1: think it was well we didn't see it as you say we no well
0: that's yeah we see it
1: early on when she kind of so harper being played by Mackenzie davis and abby being played by Kristen stewart we see you know heart but immediately regret inviting Abby but then you don't really Mm. see her conflict with her family and with Abby at all until right towards the end Mm.
0: yeah and I think it really would have benefited from her point of view from yeah well I mean that's actually cutting exactly into what I was about to say which is I think it genuinely would have benefited a lot more from having more of Harper's point of view in the story. Mm. Because the thing is, I think that she so frequently felt like she didn't feel like a genuine love interest to Abby, which is what she should have been. Mm. Um, Instead, she felt like a foil and a conflict point for Abby. For um, for for Abby's embracing Christmas, yeah. Yeah, for embracing Christmas and her, you know, her conflict of being pushed back into the closet and stuff like that, and there was a lot of genuine conflict there that was compelling and interesting, but was diluted because we didn't know who Harper was. Yeah, and like we're supposed to be rooting for them as a couple, and we've got no idea what their relationship is. Yeah, you know, like it's. I would have been very happy. I think that the first act of the film for me is where everything goes wrong, right? Because the first act did not establish who who harper is outside of her family which is what it needed to do so that we could see the change in her that abby felt during the home scenes um we needed to know why abby was in love with her Mm -hmm. uh, which we did not we needed to know why harper was in the closet which we kind of got a little bit of because we saw how much her family was image focused but then again i think we did the parallel of who she was who she actually was in the you know. and we should have been able we should we should have felt for her in the scenes of her being at home and being forced back into herself but instead we've got no idea who she is yeah we don't get to see the fun interesting smart woman who abby's fallen in love with instead we just see we get like a three minute scene about christmas lights at the start a cute kiss And then we're thrust immediately into the fact that Harper's lied not only to Abby but about Abby. Yeah. Which is really not a good hook for them as a couple, as the couple that you want to root for
1: throughout the film. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think that establishing what rom-coms are is essentially the hero's journey trope. They really are, yeah. Um, and even if you've got single point of view or dual point of view, it's it's still you know you still have to have that set up where it's establishing the world as it exists, the call to action, mm. the conflict, the denial, all yes. of those things that shape the hero's journey occur in a rom com. And we, the fact that we didn't have a substantive um, establishing the real world, as you said, you know not showing Harper's and Abby's relationship with each other before they went not enough, not showing it enough, really like going on a Christmas walk and Abby falling off a roof while hilarious um, <laughs> isn't enough to demonstrate their relationship in the core of their relationship, but also showing Harper no. and her family, like even her taking a phone call from her family in that first act and yeah. distinguishing between Abby Harper and family Harper would have been really good indication or a good introduction to harper as a person
0: yeah Um, i completely agree with that and i think too sorry to interject i completely agree with that and i also really think that given Sloane outs harper in the final act of the film that conflict and that competition should have been set up when harper's character was set up like that should have been the phone call that that should have been the phone call that she took and her getting closed off and competitive and demonstrating a part of herself that's not the one that Abby sees should have been yep. established, I think, before she left, to, before they both yes. left to go home, uh, go back to Harper's. Um, and in particular, because Sloane being the last member of the family that we meet, and then having such a pivotal role in the conflict at the end, didn't work for me at all. But anyway, sorry.
1: <laughs> Should I jump back in. Yeah, no, no, no. We'll talk, I'm sure we'll talk more is, about slime later. It's... This, it's a. I think it's such an interesting film because, as you said, it has such premise, but at the same time, it had such expectation, and I, mm. I wonder if because if it had had less of a fanfare. Mm. or it had only been delivered on streaming service because it was only delivered on Hulu in the US, if it hadn't got theatrical release everywhere else, I wonder if our expectation wouldn't be quite so high for the type of film it was because I feel like it's that thing where we have so few commercially studio-released same-sex rom-coms that everybody was sitting there going, be perfect. You have to be the greatest version of this movie. And I I, I walked out of it kind of going, my expectations were so high because of the caliber of the people in it, the caliber Mm. of the writers, the caliber of the director. But – and I kind of were like, well, okay, my expectations were definitely, number one, too high because it is a Christmas rom-com. So I need to, you know, manage that. But on the flip side of that – the caliber of the people involved should know better. They should actually know storytelling better. Um, And there are some key critical narrative beats that are missing that Mm. just – or, or, the, or they um, play the gun on the mantelpiece that ha- actually has no payoff. So stuff no. like Abby's white elephant present where it was such a big production about her trying to find a, pa- a present and her – that we never see the present. Like, no. for, we never see what Abby bought. So annoying to me. And also yeah. this idea like Abby's like, I'm really great with parents. And then she's not. But she's not bad enough with parents for her to be bad with parents but mm. she's not good enough with parents to be good at parents like it it almost didn't push some of these points far enough like no i i kind of think of i know uncle buck's probably not the best example but uncle buck another christmas movie where the action is just over the top the the mm. the foibles the fall downs the the physical comedy is just really really high and you see elements of that and they're trying to introduce elements of that but they don't go far enough, and I feel like if they'd pushed that higher, it would have actually given us more understanding of the characters, because the way characters respond in physical comedy and the way they perform in accidents or misbehaviors actually tells you a lot about who the character is, and I feel like yeah. there's this middle ground that they were aiming for that they didn't hit on either side as a rom-com or as a you know silly comedy, mm. and, and that, for me, I just... That's that's a failing of the writing and the directing, and that's really upsetting. Yeah. Um, uh, I completely agree because I think agree. the casting was was great. Even even Mackenzie Davis, who I think was a little bit miscast, I feel like she she was working her ass off for it. She was, but the material wasn't giving her enough to kind of land it. No, and well, like that's you exactly said, right. Like,
0: who is she? Who's Harper? Yeah. We don't know. Yep. And it's like, and the thing is, and this is one of the reasons I found it really infuriating is because I felt like there was so much promise in it. Like the conflict between her and Sloane, I actually found super, super compelling and interesting. You know, you've got two sisters who are in this picture-perfect family, one of whom is a, is deeply closeted and cannot break free of that emotionally. Again, of which we saw none of that really, except for one maybe one or two little scenes and then the relationship with, but at the same time, you know, as much as all as that is damaging and traumatic for her, she's still got the fact that she's the parent's favourite over Sloane because Sloane gave up a promising career to be the mum and that's now all her parents see her as and about how they're both conflicted and trying to hide things and basically just thriving mm. off this conflict that they have with one another to one-up each other, I find that really compelling. I find mm, that really mm. interesting. And that how that culminated and how that could have culminated. I mean, A, I think the one-two punch of... I think there could have been a really interesting movie and in them finding out, A, Sloan finding out that Harper was a lesbian before anyone else and Harper and Abby finding out that Sloane's husband was having an affair could have been really interesting, but the one-two punch of the way it happened was so cliché and ham-fisted. It did not work for me at all in the way that it was paced. Um, But the conflict itself I found really interesting and could have been Mm. awesome. And having that kind of – those dueling secrets between these two sisters with these conflicts who are both – who are two sisters who are – fixated on this conflict because they're both deeply unhappy and keeping secrets. That's really interesting. That's really complicated and a really cool character, character notes on both parts, That did not translate in this film to what it could have been.
1: No. And I think that's it. It's got all of the elements to make it really interesting. And, and obviously, you know, and the character of Jane is a prime example. Um, and even the character of John is a prime example as well. You know, they've got these really interesting elements that shape out who their character our characters are without actually saying very much. That yeah. like John realizing cl- any of it. Yeah, with John, we get a very clear view of who who he is, albeit a creepy, creepy friend if he's tracking all of his friends with their phone. Um <laughs> but you get a very clear idea of who he is as a person through all of his phone mm. calls with Abby, and he's not engaging with the things that are happening behind him. He's just talking to Abby and all this, you know, He's at the house, he's failed to feed the fish and all the fish are dead and he's still on the phone talking to Abby. He's at the fish, uh, he's at the pet shop trying to buy fish. You know, like yeah. all of these these small elements shape out who John is. Same with Jane. We're not told who jo- Jane is, we're shown who Jane is. She's over the top, mm-hmm. she's eccentric, she, she <laughs> he just wants to be a part of it and is never included in anything. Um, yeah. And that's all through the action more so than the dialogue. Whereas I feel like with Harper, with Sloan and with Abby, and I would say mm. Abby's a little bit underwritten as well. We're told who they are without necessarily being shown who they are. And mm. that's, that, that's what really failed. That's what didn't work for me is I was like, I was waiting for, to see the love and affection between Harper and Abby, but instead I'm getting told the love and affection between Harper and Abby. Um, totally. Yeah, I agree. And it's like, cause it, I actually screamed
0: internally at that bit at the end, where well, actually, I screamed at two bits. One of which was the bit where um, the mother says tells the husband tells her husband that she always wanted to do karate but could never do it because they can't talk to each other. I was like, "This is unearned. This is so unearned." We have known nothing about the mother that says that she does not get off on this picture perfect life herself. We have been given the image of her. She is underwritten. She is – I was infuriated by that scene, actually. And the scene where Victor Garber's character is like, no, I'm not going to push my daughter back into the closet, that was also completely unearned. There, was, there should have been a proper scene between Harper and her
1: father. There should have been a confrontation that. between Harper and her father. Yeah. Yeah. That,
0: that was, was just so,
1: them. That was just them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, agreed.
0: There really needed to be a scene, especially because, and again, this comes back to the weight that's kind of placed on this relationship on this family relationship generally, but particularly between Sloane and Harper, which became the pivotal conflict actually in that final act because ha- Sloane's the one who outs her mm-hmm. and forces the confrontation between everyone. Yeah. Um. So their relationship is generally underwritten, but also their relationship is so so pivotally relies on the fact that the father favours Harper. Mm. And we don't really, so which means that that relationship is integral and then that's not really explored until all of a sudden the dad's like, you know what? I don't even care about my political ambitions that have been my entire one character note for this entire movie. Um, I, you know, it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't feel authentic. It doesn't start
1: early enough and that's no. why it doesn't feel authentic is we get all of this growth, air quotes here, yeah. right in the last 10, 15 mm. minutes, you know, and mm. it really should have started in other ways. Like there should have been cracks in the armor much, much sooner.
0: Yeah. Through like him connecting with Abby.
1: Yes. Through if him- he had made, become best friends with Abby, that would have changed that whole t- dynamic. Exactly. Like, could you imagine?
0: Him having a connection with Abby or even him having a moment with Abby and being like, oh, I always thought she had a thing with her friend Riley back in the day. Like making a loose comment to having thought perhaps she wasn't straight. Yeah. Previously to show that he actually knew his daughter. Yeah. Because at the moment it seems like he's completely oblivious doesn't really care about her personal relationships or her friendships, and then all of a sudden makes a huge career decision of for that, you know, for his daughter, which doesn't make emotional sense in the way that it was placed within the film. Yes, love I it as an as idea, a, as a concept. As well. Yeah, but it just doesn't—it doesn't land for me. It doesn't pay and off. I, I guess that's the show. thing. It doesn't—it doesn't
1: land. It was unearned. It was unearned. And I want to say too, as a friend, even if Harper was bringing home her straight closeted friend um, for Christmas, she behaved badly as a friend. Mm. Um, If I was invited back to my friend's house for the holidays and I was an orphan and I usually hated the holidays and my friend dumped me for all her uni and high school friends, I would be pissed. Yeah, uh, agree Regardless of the, whether or not I was sleeping with the person. So, as a friend, <laughs> Har- because we don't get Harper's point of view, it's actually really hard to give any to care about Harper.
0: But even, even going beyond that, the movie never bothered to show us why Abby was in love with her. Mm. 100%. And that's like – that is pivotal in terms of romance as a genre about making us – why are we why are we rooting for them if we don't know
1: why they're because
0: yeah why they're together i actually love miscommunication at tropes right particularly in a romance I love being like oh you crazy kids just have a conversation love that <laughs> love, love that for all of us but that's not what this was because we didn't It didn't feel like that. I think that's what it was going for. Like, it wanted it to be like, of course, it's no big deal that Harper's actually hanging out with her ex because she is a lesbian. She's not in love with him. This is all a part of her internal conflict of her trying to work out how to navigate her past and And be the woman that her
1: family wants her to be and it's the performative element of engaging with your family at christmas you know like it, exactly it feeds into that so well yeah yeah and because
0: so the conflict in this in my mind should have been that miscommunication right the fact that harper didn't know how to communicate that with abby and but abby Coming into the situation is seeing Harper not being the woman who she's fallen in love with and has known really well, being confused about all these dynamics and thinking, "Oh, Harper's not out, so she's kept me a secret. What other secrets are she keeping? Uh, is she keeping?" Um, and that's where the conflict between the two of them should have come in, but instead it kind of ends up being like, "Is Harper? What? What does Abby even see in Harper?" Mm. Why is she still here, apart from the fact that it's $1,000 to get back to, to get home? Like, what's the, the, because in the former, I think there's a really rich and interesting conflict, right? Like, there's such a, and something we don't see frequently in romance movies with an established gay couple. Yep. But that's not something we frequently get to see. Like a lot of, even the gay romances that we do see, they're frequently like the meet-cutes, you know? Like it's get, it's the getting-together narrative. It's not the established it's relationship. It's not the staying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, there's so much territory here to explore and the stuff that was implied is so good and so rich and so satisfying. Just it wasn't written that way? Like no. it didn't... It didn't come through, which is why, and again, this is one of those cases, which we've had a few of these movies on this podcast now, where I'm infuriated because the promise and the potential is so good. Yes. And, like, this could have been such a good movie, with actually not changing that much, just deepening. Like, I actually don't have that many, like, narrative
1: changes to make I'm just write more of it <laughs> just write and that's it, it better I think, and write more and deliver on what you you promised like there were so many threads mm. that were introduced that were just left hanging like yeah. the white the white elephant thing and yes um even the Connor thing like if Abby had made friends with Connor and you know instead of seeing him as a competition because she knows Harper's a lesbian like that would yeah. have made such a difference so like you know thread or the if Harper had actually come out to Connor, like when he yeah. says, "I always felt like you kept a secret from me," and she's like, "Yes, you you are. You're right. It's because mm. it wasn't about you." Um, yeah, because
0: that re- that relationship felt like nothing. Like I'm like, "Why is this taking up so much screen time when it's not doing anything except yeah. making Abby confused, insecure?" Yeah, this is something I find genuinely really infuriating with a lot of movies, not just this one. But in this, you've got Abby Harper. I'm sorry, Abby, Riley, and Connor are all or have been in love with Harper at some point. Mm-hmm. Why? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me why. Because I'm not... And I usually really like Mackenzie Davis, right? Like, I think she's an incredibly talented actress. I love her in Tully. I love her in the Black Mirror San Junipero episode. I even really liked her in Terminator Dark Fate. I think she's a fantastic actress and super, super charismatic, but she is a black hole frequently in scenes in this movie, and I am it's just the hair, like,
1: Sophie. It's all about <laughs> it's the, probably the hair. that, that, the, wig. It's that all about three, the wig. It's all about the wig.
0: It's like you're trying to tell me that three people are or have been in love with her. Show me yeah. why. Make yeah. me. I want to be in love with her. This is a romance think- movie. <laughs>
1: That's such a good point. We needed to be in love with Harper and feel her conflict, and instead, we were just aggravated by her.
0: Mm. she's the yeah. she's the problem, really, at the heart of the film, but it's like but it's frustrating though because like I said before, all the relationships feel underwritten. It's not yes. just Harper and Abby. and again, it's a shame because I like what's on the page, you know mm-hmm. but it's mm-hmm. just not it doesn't come
1: across well enough. It doesn't land. I should be wanting to watch that every year, and instead I just want yeah. Kristen Stewart's wardrobe and then let the film go. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> that grey suit is pretty amazing. Oh, the grey suit. And the black, like, lace camisole suit that she wears to the first Christmas party, I'm like, yeah, yes. Yes, 110%. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. Anyway, um, I feel like we've actually covered so much of what we would normally talk about. We yeah. have. But uh, in terms of the female roles, we've got such a really interesting group of women who kind of lean towards, I think, stereotypes or character choices a little bit t- mm. too often. Um, and then you have Jane. I'm Sophie's grinning lot, maniacally man. at me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I really liked Jane a lot. I thought she was so much fun. I thought she was really... Actually, I've got to take some of that back. No, I don't. No, I don't. I didn't like Jane's arc. I loved the fact that she was the handy person who was always trying to do something around the house to prove her value and prove her worth. And I loved that one actually one of the most satisfying moments of the movie for me is when she actually kind of becomes friends with John, who actually sees potential and who actually likes talking to her and what she does. And I wish we'd kind of seen more of that. But her relationship with the sisters felt so, again, underwritten. Her place in the family felt confused. A lot of the time, I mean, uh, I just yes. don't know.
1: I get yeah. it, but I, I completely agree with you. I don't think her arc quite lands the way it could. But in saying that, her that moment when they're in the midst of Sloane and Harper losing their freaking minds and like tackling each other at a political Christmas party. But for for them to destroy her painting and for her to mm. then suddenly have that moment of, hang on, this is actually something I value. Mm. I, I feel like almost as if everybody else should have valued that painting. Like everybody kind of looked at it like it was someone had spat on a wall. But if everybody mm. else in that room had seen that painting and been struck with awe at how good it was, and it was a, it was a really good painting. Yeah. Um, If they had seen Jane's value, if everybody else in the room apart from her family had seen Jane's value, I think that scene would have landed better. Um, But for her to be able to stand up to herself and say, I invested myself in that and you destroyed it like it was nothing. Mm. I think that was, I got so much more character growth (laughs) out of her in that one moment than we got from some of the other characters throughout the whole movie. And that she annoyed the living shit out of me right up until that point. And then I was like, "I love you," and you were the best person here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, but yeah, I think she was. She was borderline. That this wacky, the wacky sister is such a weird trope that I see in rom coms a lot. Like in Wedding Crashes, Isla Fisher's character. Like mm. these people's behavior in real life. I, I, it, I don't know. It just. Well, I get that is, it's didn't a movie. I don't even think she it's... was that wacky.
0: No, like, it's it, and even the tr- the thing when it was like the early line of her being like, "Oh, she was put in the basement because of her night terrors," and I'm like, "Well, that just seems
1: like your family is highly neglectful." <laughs> well, this is um, it <laughs> when her that's... mum says, "And Jane, the only stable one out of all of them is because we gave up on her at two because she wouldn't stop biting." <laughs> and yeah. it's like I kind of. I kind of appreciated that because I was like, yeah, that makes sense. This explains why Jane is the way she is, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Again,
0: I just felt like the family dynamic was so
1: cliff notes. Yeah. Overall. But so much potential to see the value in it. Like, I feel like, like you say, there just could have been so much more and it just needed small little tweaks to, to, it did, yeah. to, to play it out. Um And what you just said before too about the other people at the
0: party seeing value in Jane's work, I think is such a good point. And like in particular, because I don't think that's one of the things, I think that's one of the things we lacked in the movie was perspective generally, but in particular outside perspectives of the situation, because like it didn't seem like Abby had an opinion actually on Harper's family. No. No. Um, and it didn't seem like even like John made the one comment about the mum being fabulous and we know that she's kind of a cunt. Like it's – sorry, that's a bit harsh. We know that she's kind of, you know, <laughs> not the best mother or, you know, like that she's very, very much kind of this waspy um, and, and, well, woman who's created an environment where her daughters don't feel like they can be themselves, you know. Yeah. And that never really got – addressed.
1: Yeah, Um, and I think the way you could have got around that is Abby actually forming any type of relationship with any of them uh um, yes. whether it was conflict because she never had direct conflict with them even with the whole stealing no. of the necklace issue she didn't have a direct conflict with them it was kind of filtered through Harper um I, the one yeah. moment that she does or the one couple of moments that she does is with the mother she has the most to do with the mother but you still don't know if Abby's trying to impress the mother or she's given up on the mother or no. or any of that it's just kind of she just interacts with them and she gets scolded by the mother like yeah, I feel like there was just... Again, it's it's that thing where there was enough there to make it work, but it just didn't quite work.
0: Yeah. And it's also this thing... That's actually such a good point, generally, but about how we didn't really see her properly interact with any of them. But it's also something I think we didn't see the differences in the way that she interacted with them. Like there Because yes. there was no difference. And, like, no. so much of character and fleshing out characters is really embracing how like she Abby should have had a very different relationship to Jane than she did to Sloane. Yes. But it wasn't, it was the same. Which was slightly distanced, not really knowing, not really engaging with them. In fact I'd say with the mother and father too. Abby had the exact same relationship with all four of them. Whereas you've got four people who have actually interacted with her in different ways. You've got the father who hasn't really interacted with her at all beyond um, thinking that she's stolen the bracelet um, which was a stupid subplot by the way um, and did not need to be in there Um, Mm -hmm. the mother who's been judgmental um, Mm -hmm. Sloane who's clearly thinking why the fuck are you there Mm -hmm. why are you here Um, and then Jane who's actually made an effort like that's actually different enough that Abby should have had a different response to those four people but he doesn't. Yeah, yeah. And that's a flaw in the writing.
1: Yeah, it's so disappointing. And too, dare I say it such... in Kristen
0: Stewart's performance?
1: Yes. Well, I think she's working with the material she's got. Like yes, it, and that's that's really sad because you we've seen Kristen Stewart be incredible. Like yeah, I agree. I think she can be great. Um, I think she but... needs a good director though. She needs a very strong director. Yes, 100% yeah. agree. But you've got really um, some inc- really interesting female characters who are really different um, personality-wise or at least in the, sh- the shape of them are different that we could have seen such interesting dynamics in terms of female mm. relationships that we didn't actually get a chance to explore or see played out because it was literally just... Harper and Abby being cranky at each other but not enough for anything to happen
0: (laughs) yeah and that's actually again like that's another good point where it's kind of like it was a lot of people talking at each other not with each other
1: yeah a lot of people telling each other things yeah yeah Yeah. a lot of people telling each other things even the Riley and and Abby stuff which everybody's raving about um, I think is still a lot of telling not showing um I think there's... I
0: have a suspicion that a lot of that is because Aubrey Plaza is incredibly attractive.
1: Uh, uh yes. because
0: I don't think that she added much at all <laughs> to the film as a character. As a character as an actress, she's got a great presence and I love her,
1: but But she has the most act- most interaction with Abby. And yes. they obviously have play off each other really well. They which do. She yeah. has to do, I think, with both of them as actresses but also the fact that their segments were the most well-written. And, mm. <laughs> and so that doesn't help the factor no. at all. Um, but I think that's a really good point to talk about Riley and to transition away because we are talking about Lady Parts. But yeah, let's talk about Riley because I think she's an interesting character and I think you hit the nail on mm. the head when you said – And we I think we've talked a lot about the others now. We have. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head when you said we don't – We don't see why Abby is in love with Harper, and we certainly don't see why Riley's still hung up on Harper. And Mm. if she had such a negative experience in that town... I I actually quite liked her being a bit resentful that she has to go to all her family Christmas stuff. Like, her parents Mm. are dragging her around to visit all the family friends who actually hate each other. We don't see why Riley's still hung up on it. Like, And is it just a Christmas thing? Is the fact that she runs into... Harper every Christmas, is that the reason that she's resentful Mm. towards Harper or is it because she actually still has feelings for Harper? That's unclear and that's a shame, but I think you're completely Mm. right. Aubrey Plaza oozes charisma in this role and that, that sells Riley to everybody. Yeah, I agree. I do like, though, I think their backstory, Riley and Harper's, and it's an interesting question because obviously everyone's painted Riley as the town lesbian which is interesting mm. given that they've obviously got a drag club in town yes um, <laughs> but you know the fact that two best friends uh, started a relationship with each other I that is that's such an interesting um, I think place to start
0: but I agree I, li- I like that backstory I like the the inception point of them as having A, in a failed relationship, but B, almost a... Because they were so young. They are like, what, freshmen in high school? So they would have been yeah. 14 when all yeah. of that was happening. And about that kind of... What that offers narratively as kind of this arrested development for Harper, where she's the same as she was then versus seeing Riley's growth as a person. Mm. um, Being out and being, you know out and proud as much as it's a cliche, but seeing her as a super, you know, adult in her own life, whereas Harper, as soon as she's back with her parents, becomes she the reverts. perfect daughter. She reverts. You know, that's a really compelling, again, conflict. Yeah. Um, and steeped in genuine feelings on both ends, as it should have been, but again, didn't really come across. Um, but that's another interesting hook for the film overall. Like I was saying, Amy, this is the problem. There's so much, like, interesting dynamics teased but not
1: explored in the way that they could be. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. 100%. I want to return very, very quickly to our conversation about the Chris- the Christmas movie, right? Mm, um, yeah. So Happy Season is pegging itself as a Christmas rom-com, Christmas being the central... Mm-hmm. Theme, but it is definitely rom com first, Christmas second, and I would almost yes. posit that the Christmas is completely superfluous. It didn't need to be Christmas at all no. for this film to exist. The fact that it exists at Christmas, what does it add to the story, to your mind?
0: Not much. I completely agree. This is a meet the parents movie. That's mm. the trope. Yeah. Um. The Christmas is kind of incidental. It feels like the it feels like the reason they wanted the Christmas trope was to have everyone back in town. Right. Um which I think is fair, but I wonder if that couldn't have been a, reun- a high school reunion given so much of it was based around the high school um and the high school feelings. Yep. Um but I think the Christmas trope what they wanted it for in my mind at least um, was I I feel like Claire Duval probably went with a specific intent or started this project with a specific intent of writing a lesbian Christmas rom-com, which is fair. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love more of them too. Um, here we go. Uh, I think, like I said, the conceit of having everyone back in town yep. um, from Harper's past. Mm-hmm. Um, I think adding to the pressure of the events overall because you know everyone wants to put on the perfect face for Christmas again yes. which goes back to what you were saying about the everyone's their best self and playing with that trope yep and I'd say oh, the, the um, political plot line with the with all the photos being taken with for the for his mayoral, for the father's mayoral campaign. Yeah right um, okay about socials that's probably what I'd say and then plus the uh, Christmas whimsy trope. Which I think was lacking. I don't don't think there was enough Christmas whimsy.
1: There definitely Um, wasn't enough Christmas whimsy. Because I think one of the super, super sub, 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 sub plots was convincing Abby that Christmas is still worth having. You know, Christmas can be still magical. It can still be wonderful. We did not see that. (laughs) <laughs> no, um, if I was Abby I would be done with Christmas yeah <laughs> this and this is where I come back to the idea of kind of Uncle Buck or Home Alone it almost needed to lean into the slapstick comedy aspects more to make that pay off like it is such a disaster beyond yeah. Harper's secret, beyond Harper and Abby's relationship falling apart, that Christmas is just generally a disaster zone anyway, that yeah. it's okay to hate Christmas as long as you're with the people that you love, you know? Like, if it, yeah. that had kind of been the end theme to that storyline, mm-hmm. um, I think I would have come out of it a little bit happier. But – yeah. You know, setting off the it just it just didn't kind of give us enough there, and I mean, and that plays into you know what was the point of the twins? The twins were there to cause up unnecessarily unnecessary trouble, which if they had done more of that, would have made them much more useful as characters. But it did not.
0: Yeah, and also this sounds really awful, but there I think as well to tick a diversity box.
1: Well, I think that was that's the point. They actually say that that Sloane helps his campaign because she married a black guy. Yeah. 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 Because it's so, like, I would think it the probably have been said- better again if they had a point
0: in the yes. narrative? Deeper than or that.
1: But if it had been more, like, if they'd lent more into it, like the fact mm. that Sloane married a african-american gentleman specifically to make herself useful to her father's political campaign yeah would have been horrifying but also much more meaningful yeah. than just you know if she was playing that up to make herself more useful to her father rather than you know them harping on about the fucking gift baskets you know
0: yeah i know that was i was over that plot line by the end of it um i can yeah i agree and it's also like even just like throwing something out there again in our classic fix it way uh the scene where sloan outs harper and harper's like no i'm not a lesbian and abby's visibly hurt by it imagine if she goes to the door and she finds that they're snowed in yeah done christmas trope (laughs) <laughs> um, check. You know, it's just like it's it didn't actually lean into anything, as you kind of just said. It's like it was borderline the set dressing point. Mm. Um it's not, I think it is the scaffolding, kind of, you know, as opposed to the house. It's the scaffolding. Yep. Um but it didn't it didn't embrace any of it. Like it didn't feel like it really wanted to
1: lean into the hokiness of a Christmas movie. Which is kind of the point is, of a
0: Christmas movie.
1: Exactly, and I think that's the part that's missing. It didn't quite lean into so many things. Even the Meet the Parents trope. Like, Meet the Parents is yeah. such a great comparison because it leans into the disaster elements yeah. of what that entails. You know, he breaks the bride-to-be's nose playing pool volleyball. Um, yeah, You know, he sets the gazebo on fire. You know, he threatens to milk the cat. Like, all of that kind of it, – it, Meet the Parents is such a great example that had this followed that a little bit more closely, I think, or I think it was trying to follow that, but it just didn't, it didn't, it didn't lean in. It it just, it was almost wary of going too far in any direction that it actually hobbled Mm. itself quite a lot.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think that was probably partially what the shoplifting storyline was about, but it just did not. And even that scene, with the security guards oh, God, did not work me. For me at all.
1: Kill me. That was, that was really was bad. <laughs> I
0: mean And I love Lauren Lapkus who was the female security guard. I love her. But it was that was a rough
1: rough 5 minutes. <laughs> and honestly, if you're shopping with children, where were the children? Who like I know and if you're shopping with children, the security guards aren't going to interrogate those kids before they start throwing yeah. accusations at an adult. Let's be honest. Like, yeah. come on. Come on. We're an adult white lady. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, so generally, overall, I, look, I don't think it's a complete disaster of a film. I just think no. it does, doesn't do, it doesn't deliver on the promise of it. No,
0: no. And for that, it is infuriating. To your good friend So. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think we've we've dissected all of our female characters quite a lot. Um, yeah. Kristen Stewart's Boy hair. Bits, I also. don't feel any. I yeah. really want her hair, just saying. Boy bits. Nah, she looked great. She looked great in it. Phenomenal the whole way through. She's the flag. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, she looked fantastic. Yeah. I don't know why Harper would leave her side. That's just crazy talk. <laughs> Um, well, Harper's a non-entity she's a black hole as I said before <laughs> probably, right. probably better that she wasn't at her side ever <laughs> um, yes no boy bits to speak of but the Beckdale wallace test Sophie over it well I mean they did technically talk
0: about somebody other than a man yes.
1: however they did talk about Connor rule- an awful lot
0: they did and does this same rule apply for a lesbian film
1: or a same sex film. Um
0: Yeah.
1: Interesting. Because
0: Abby predominantly talked about Harper, who was her love interest. And vice versa.
1: This is true. And frankly, the well it's I think it's the Vector Wells test is hard to pass in any rom com you know yes. um, queer or otherwise so maybe we just put it down to lots of female characters uh that we would have liked to meet more of and they do talk about things other than men so you know that that's yes. a win that is a win yes um uh, sexy i am lamp gonna test. say in advance oh. it fails the sexy lamp test oh really tell me more yeah,
0: definitely are you telling me that harper
1: could not be replaced by a sexy lamp <laughs> a sexy lamp in a wig <laughs> in a bad wig. <laughs> that wig was so distracting. it was so annoying. it was so distracting. I don't understand. Anyway, uh, yeah, okay, fair. that's fair. Yep. Yeah. yep. Okay. Sorry Harper. <laughs> um, but my question I guess my question is would you watch it again if it went on a streaming service and you were very drunk?
0: I would, but only to rant about it.
1: <laughs> that's you know fair. how much
0: I love ranting about movies, Amy.
1: I do. I mean that's literally why we <laughs> created this podcast. <laughs> that
0: was around mutual ranting needs. <laughs> that's
1: right, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, that's it's sad. I think it's disappointing. Like, it's, it's not the worst film I've ever seen. It's not the worst rom-com. It's not no. the worst Christmas film. It's definitely not the worst queer film I've ever seen. It just had so much potential. But what I'm excited by is the fact that it's kind of like the bad pancake theory. You know, the mm-hmm. first pancake out of the batch is terrible, and all the other pancakes will be great.
0: Yes. Well, hopefully. I'm hoping this does create a trend. Of queer... With lesbian Christmas movies.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Well, there's already um, same-sex male Christmas movies in the the Mm. ether that... um, we we really I feel like should counterbalance by watching um, and they're yes. on streaming services at the moment. Dashing in December I think is quite exciting it stars Andy McDowell of all people um, which is fantastic um, and then the other one which is a lifetime holiday movie uh, called The Christmas Setup and it stars Fran Drescher and it has two male romantic leads as well so to queer Christmas movies to counterpoint the other queer Christmas movie that came out this year, which was Happiest Season.
0: Oh, cool. Well, that's it from us today, I think. Yes, it is. Very exciting. We'll be back in the new year. We will! So we're saying goodbye to 2020. um, Yes. And hoping that 2021 will be better, but also not putting too much pressure on it, like this Christmas movie, perhaps. (laughs)
1: much pressure on it so we're going in with moderate expectations so as not to yeah. disappoint ourselves exactly yes.
0: um and we have some uh i wouldn't say big plans we've got plans for next year so stay tuned uh follow us on uh, twitter at lady parts podcast no t um on facebook at inside voice a u and on instagram at inside voice a u
1: Yes, and you can follow our own accounts. I am at Insomniacs Cafe. And
0: I'm at my name, which is Sophie It.
1: So don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. Not in that order or in that order if that's you're so inclined. But other than that, we will catch you in 2021. Stay safe and yeah, see you soon. Bye. Bye.